Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in again to Authentic Living with Roxanne. Uh, today I have a colleague, Natasha Halliday, uh, and she's a child and youth care practitioner. Hi, Natasha. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks. How are you, Roxanne? So Natasha and I are colleagues. Um, we're uh, both professional speakers at uh, the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers. And, you know, the issue of um, child mental health is, is something, and child and youth mental health is something that I know is we, we hear about it a lot, we talk about it a lot, and unfortunately, we, we've been seeing more incidences with mental health-related uh, concerns, so that's why I wanted Natasha to kind of come on and chat about it. So Natasha, kind of kind of tell, tell us how you kind of got going in the field, like what made you um, want to get into the arena in, in helping um, children and uh, young adults? Uh, funny enough, I knew, I always knew as a young person that I wanted to be in a helping profession. What that looked like, I wasn't quite sure. I was leaning between psychology and a lawyer, and uh, my big sister wanted to be a child psychologist, and so I thought, okay, I'll just do what she's doing, <laughs> and initially started as a psychology major, um, and then got word of a child and youth worker program at, uh, at Centennial College, or, um, and I applied to that. I ended up going first out to Algonquin in Ottawa. Um, to start school, but I ended up working in, in the child and youth care field that way and um, just really felt right at home. Like this was what I knew I was supposed to do, working with young people. Um, I got a specific interest for acute mental health and was very fortunate to get a job in a hospital very early in my career. And that's kind of where I've stayed since I've done other types of work. I've taught in the child and youth care program at uh, Centennial College. Um, but I really just love working in acute mental health with young people who are facing a variety of mental health issues. And just the things that I see, uh, my passion just continues. And the flame is always lit for me to do whatever I can to be of help to young people and their families facing mental health issues. So tell me, like, I mean, you've been doing this quite a while now. Yep. Do, would you say that mental health concerns with younger people are on the rise, or is it just that we're knowing more about it? I always wonder about that, right? Like, is it that it's always kind of been there, and now we have knowledge and we have channels to make us aware it's happening, or is it definitely on the increase? I think, one, I think that's a great question, because that's something that I often raise to people when they say, oh, it's increasing. And I said, I don't know if we really know that for sure. I think we have language that we didn't have before. So a young person experiencing symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety, um, OCD, any number of things may not have realized this was something they could seek help for, something that needed to be addressed, and they would suffer in silence potentially. And so I think any number of young people years and years ago could have been facing these issues without any help. And now we're getting to a point where the language is there for people to be able to identify it without having expertise to recognize it enough to say that may be something that you need to seek some help with. Um, on top of that, I think that um, 
we're facing a generation that isn't quite as resilient as young people used to be, and that can lead to any number of mental health issues. Um, the expectation that you get what you want when you want without working for it has kind of been, unfortunately, how in, in North America, how we're raising our children. And so when reality hits and it's not like that and life throws you the punches that it does, uh, I, sometimes I feel that our young people are less equipped to deal with the hard blows of life. So I think there's a combination of things that lead to the mental health issues on top of things like hereditary. I think many people were raised by a generation of people who had mental health issues and where they were never addressed. And so there's environments that they experience on top of their own life circumstances that can lead to mental health issues. Whether there's a rise, I'm not really sure. I do know that in the work that I've done, there's an increase in young people um, coming to hospital seeking admission. But again, that is a combination, I think, of there being need and also being recognition of where to go now, knowing that there are hospital programs now where they may not have been before. So the inpatient unit model has, I think there was maybe four, five inpatient units, if that, in the GTA 25 years ago, and maybe general hospitals were operating out of pediatrics. Um, and very few outpatient clinics, and then the rest was community-based. But now there's, you know, every few general hospitals will have an adolescent unit and an outpatient program. And so there's many more places that people can go and seek the help that they need. Let's talk a little bit about resilience. And you touched on that. <clears throat> and I actually just um, interviewed someone uh, not too long about um, marginalized populations in young adults, right? So you're saying that people are definitely more, less resilient compared to, say, maybe a, a potentially a generation ago. What kind of factors are you seeing that would say that they're less resilient compared to, say, maybe, you know, your generation or my generation before that? So what I can speak to is what I've seen. I don't have any hard facts or statistics on any of this stuff. Um, in the 18 years that I've worked in inpatient adolescent mental health, I've seen a range of young people coming and presenting with thoughts of suicide, having faced very significant trauma, very significant hardship. Um, and while that still exists, there's a propensity for it to be that and include what on a surface level may seem quite minor. And so there's that presentation of, I'm upset by something. I never expected that life could upset me. I don't know how to handle it. Well, then I might as well end my life. And when you start talking to them, I've, I've often talked to young people and I, what I call the language of suicide and teaching young people that when you're hurting, learn to express I'm in pain and I don't know what to do versus I want to end my life. Because when you start to dig, it's not always true thoughts of wanting life mm -hmm. to be over. It may just be, I don't want it to be like this and I don't know, I don't see any other way out. And so even in that difference in the language, it changes maybe how it's approached. Um, but I have seen an increase in young people expressing high levels of devastation over seemingly superficial things. And I say seemingly because it's not my job to decide what should make somebody upset. I just know I've seen a change in the things that are triggering young people to be quite upset and to struggle a lot. And so I think... Um, mm. That's one of the areas I see it. Um, like I said, I've taught in the college um, and I've seen 
a difference in how the students have presented over the years mm -hmm. there as well. There is an expectation that their presence is enough for an A <laughs> at some <laughs> level. Um, and the, the idea or the understanding that um, you have to put the work into it is, is not always there. Um, a, a more extreme example, I had a young, a young person present me with their report card and show me that she had always gotten A's and challenged me on not giving her an A. And so I said to her, well, there was an assignment that was worth 25% of your mark. You did not submit it. What kind of math could I do to give you an A? Because that's an automatic 75 if you get perfect in everything else. And she paused and she goes, oh, yeah, I guess I can't get an A. But I think at, when we talked more, what I was seeing was the A for her was a reflection of her what I thought. When I validated she was a brilliant young woman, that she was quite capable, she seemed quite relieved. And so she was, there was part of it was taking in that what my grades are is telling me what you think of me. But I'm like, my, your grades are reflective of the work you do. Mm -hmm. I'm not personalizing this. Um, but it was just also that expectation, well, I always get A's, so I should get A's. I should get mm -hmm. an A this time. But did you do A-level work? If you don't do a full assignment worth a quarter percentage of your mark, it is impossible for me to give you an A. So I, I think, you know, and I've also taught college and university, and, um, you know, I started to teach right after I got out of consulting again. And that's what I also found is, was that there was an entitlement, yes, an entitlement absolutely. mentality. And I, I was thinking about my time and my tenure, which is always back. And I thought I always, the, the, my learnings were try really, really hard. And your, your input equals outcome. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I definitely was seeing that a lot of the uh, students that I was teaching at the college level were struggling with. Yeah, and I think that the, the, this it, propensity for entitlement that we're seeing goes hand in hand with um, th this decrease in resilience. Yeah. Because entitlement teaches you that you don't have to do the work to get the results. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 all, it's living in a cushioned state all the time. And I think that's where we're, we're doing a disservice to our young people is having them understand that or leading them to understand that there's not going to be challenges because life will challenge you. Mm -hmm. And so what I've seen is an increase in parental involvement up to a college level. Mm -hmm. The parents are still trying to do it. And then eventually mom and dad have to step back and that young person's left not knowing how to navigate themselves through the world as an adult because they've been, it's been taken care of for them. And so they struggle with that. And I think that is part of why we see a decrease in the resilience. I understand parents want to do everything they can to give their young people a good life. But if that does not include an understanding that life will present challenges, and this is how we face challenge, we often are doing a disservice. It's almost like, uh, I often say it's like the pendulum have swung too far, right? Yes. It's almost like, you know, your parents didn't, my parents didn't have, so therefore they swung the pendulum so, so far that to some degree, the parents are trying to save the child from experiencing potentially some things that they went through that was tough for them. Right. Not recognizing what they developed out of having faced those things. And it's not to say you want to throw yourself, your child into adversity, but if you have them thinking they'll never face adversity, when it does come, then they're, they're not equipped to deal. And, and that's so true, right? Because you, you think of the little lessons you kind of learned along the way. I think of when I was growing up and, you know, um, I was in this race and, I, you know, it's just so funny, but I think about it now and it was such a devastating thing to me. And I didn't do very well because the, tra the course was not quite um, outlined the way it should have been. 
And I remember being completely devastated. I'm 11 years old. I'm a pretty good runner. <laughs> and I'm just like deflated. And I remember my parents saying, well, it's a, it's a race. It's not a big deal. You tried your best. You know, sometimes things go wrong. And it, it definitely did go wrong. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in my little heart, that was just, my world was caving in at sports day. Like, really? And, and then, I, you know, you felt the pain, obviously, because, you, you know, you didn't do as well as you wanted. But you, you, that's such a small thing. But in retrospect, now as an adult, you kind of think, well, yeah, okay. I was upset. Was it painful? Yes. Was I sad? Yes. But then it, did I get over it? Absolutely, I got over it. But I had to give that, myself that time to kind of upset about it. But then it, it was fine again. But I think you're probably right. You know, with the helicoptering that we see, uh, kids get jobs really young. But our parents teaching them some of those core basic skills to really kind of fall down, fall down, bruise your knee, quite literally, figuratively speaking, sitting there in it for a while to reflect on it instead of kind of picking them up and helping them along. Right. Well, the, the interesting thing is I recently heard the new term is now um, snowplow parenting. So we moved from you know, the bubble wrap where it was, I'm going to try and shelter you from all of it to now snowplow parenting is the idea that I'm going to remove every obstacle I see Ooh. out of your way. And you just go this perfectly paved line that, you, that doesn't include these hardships, but it can't always be done. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what's great about your example is your parents addressed. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. And so at 11, you already started to learn Things are going to happen that I don't like, mm -hmm. but that's okay. And it's not going to be the end of my world and I'm, I don't have to be shattered by it. And the difference is when young people are not given that information in a healthy way, sometimes they're devastated by things that don't necessarily need to devastate or what happens is they get stuck in a pattern of, I'm not okay with this and it's not and I'm not okay with this but that happens in life. And so how do I move on? Sometimes what's missing is the how do I move on piece. Wow. And the slow plowing effect, that's interesting, right? Because I often say we have kids getting jobs at 15, right? We have kids, you know, um, driving cars, they're, they're making decisions, they're having bank accounts, but this emotional, almost like a tally, if we're trying to have them not experience that and we put them out, I, you know, I've done a lot of uh, work with uh, universities on the psychological end. And what, I'm, what I found was that sometimes in first year university, developmentally, emotionally and, and, and cognitively, even though their kids are capable of doing the work, they're not emotionally level uh, um, at a level to be able to deal with the pressures that are coming from being away from home for the first time. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's where we see a big difference because it's a, a big change. Yeah. You know, I, I did that. I, I went to high school and I was determined to go away because I was spoiled and I knew mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I was an old soul. So I thought, I'm only going to grow up if I go away from home. And that's precisely what I did. But it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. And what, what helped me was we developed our community amongst our friends because so many of us were away from home. Mm -hmm. But I was able to make good connections that kept me level-headed <laughs> rather than <laughs> probably losing my mind like some of my peers. Um, but it's, you know, that was one of the things that taught me connection is how you keep your, yourself balanced. I learned that fairly young because I had beautiful connections in my childhood and in my early, in my adolescence. And then I went away and I learned again, create connection. So when I was having a rough time, my, my, um, 
second year of university, one of our peers was, was killed. Oh, no. And had we not had that community amongst ourselves, I don't know what we would have done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we learned very, in a very tough way, show up for one another and have people to lean on. So it was the family's only child. They had to go to a town that they weren't living in for the trial. And we made sure that there was always somebody there with the parents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at 19 and at 20, <laughs> that was the group of young people that I was connected to who had that ability to build um, connections that way. And so it taught me something about um, my supports and how I cope with things required being connected to people. And it was a tough way to learn that lesson, but a beautiful lesson at the same time. That connection is part of how you keep yourself going when you're having a rough time. Because to your point, we're all, life's going to bring us pain. That's, that's the reality of life. Absolutely. And I think, I, I think we've forgotten that in the West. I think that's a basic thing. Um, it doesn't have to be suffering. I often say we will all go through pain, but it need not be suffering. Um, and then because we're, we're cushioning the kids so much, right? Because we're trying to be these perfect parents, which none of us are, um, that maybe some of the basic things about um, learning about pain are being taken away from young kids. Yeah. And then they're going off, they're less connected. We know that it's everything's instant gratification. All their connections are now more um, online. Um, They're not going out and really sitting across from each other as much. They're having to learn some of the basic skills, the tending skills to be able to connect with others. And if they're not doing that, as they kind of go through their years of growing up, and they go away from home. To your point, resilience is going towards, even though I feel like being alone, even though I feel like sitting in my pain, even though I feel like feeling sorry for myself, if I talk to someone else, if I spend some time with someone else, generally I feel better. But if, if you're not kind of seeing that modeled or you're practicing it as you're, when you're a kid, it's kind of harder to do it when you're kind of off, like, a, like you said, in a little town where you're com- completely new. Yeah, I often, uh, my, my biggest uh, or my com- most commonly used analogy for resilience, I, I often compare it to um, being in the rain with an umbrella. Okay. So life is going to, there's going to be rain. Mm-hmm. I don't have to, I, I'm not always in a position where I completely can remove myself from the rain. But if I stand outside in the rain with an umbrella, I'm not affected by it in the same way. And I think this is what we have to be able to teach people is, instead of always avoiding rain, because that's not always possible, here's an umbrella and here's how to use it. Mm-hmm. And understanding that you can, in the midst of something difficult or unpleasant, create safeguards so that it doesn't have, you don't get drenched like you would if you didn't have your umbrella. And so that's what I aim to teach people is, how do you um, understand, yes, I may, I may face a hardship, but there's safeguards that I can put in place so that may not have the same detrimental effect on me. Now, let's talk a little bit on the parenting end um, and talk about when you have these kids that are coming in. And ideally, uh, you know, we work from, um, as psychotherapists and, and uh, mental health practitioners, we work from a frame of um, securely attached parenting, which is ideal, um, right? We want every parent to be able to know how to hold on and to let go and let the child be and and learn, right? 
Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I could say that most, most people have not had perfect parenting and not that we're looking for perfection, but sometimes the stability to be able to allow the child to go through the stages to kind of come out the other end, knowing who they are and what their internal resources are. Right. So when you have kids coming in, how is it that you deal with the parents? Obviously, they're already, I would think that they're probably in crisis if their kid's in crisis. Absolutely. How do you kind of find out the patterns and some of the things that they may be doing and deliver some information that would tell them that they need to shift some things? Well, I think that a big part of working with young people, and it's been amazing because I've worked in hospitals for, I said, like 18 years. And so working with maybe a nurse or a social worker who had worked with solely adults prior, they're often amazed by how much more time it takes to work with young people, children and adolescents. And I said, because you have more, more people to talk to. So I might be teaching skills to a young person, but if I don't teach it to the home environment, then it's often lost, mm-hmm. right? It's just like if I were taking piano lessons, I have to practice at home to be able to go back to the, to the piano studio and be able to play at a certain level. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for the, for the mental health piece. If I'm teaching a young person coping skills and you know how to be more resilient, if I'm not providing their families with that same education on some level, then the parents feel helpless. They don't feel that they can reinforce what the young person has learned in therapy or through some kind of form of treatment. Um, They don't necessarily have the language. So when their child is trying to speak to them about it, 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 you know, they don't necessarily know how to respond. And it may be, even what I found in teaching parents about how to support their young person, sometimes it's new teaching for them too. And it gives them a framework to help shift their own lives to be able to move so that the in their own practice, in their own life, they can look at how do I take these things on so that I can operate in a way that's going to be helpful to myself, but also helpful to those around me. So it's very important to understand that. um, And again, we're looking at ideals, having the family unit involved, whatever that family unit looks like, whether it's one parent, two parents, four parents, because it's a blended family. Um, If grandparents are involved, because we live in a very multicultural society and grandparents are often in the home, whoever's in the home, siblings, what can they, each person learn a little bit about so that they're able to support that young person who is facing that mental health issue? That's a that, key part. Right. And I often say that sometimes that the, you know, your patient is the person that's holding the symptoms sometimes for what's happening at home. And then, and then just, you know, um, trying to have people really listen, you know, to really what's going on. I, I recently, um, was a little while back, saw a seven-year-old. And um, he was very, very anxious, right? And he would have these meltdowns at school. And then, of course, he would be um, labeled, you know. Yeah, they would see his behavior versus right, right. the underlying anxiety. Right. And then eventually he came in and then I started to see, teach him some things. And then, then I, I wanted to see the entire family. And the father said to me on the way in, well, I don't need therapy. And I said, Oh, of course you don't. I said, but you know, it's just kind of important to talk to everyone. And then of course, sure enough, when we start to really just open up the conversation, the firstborn had no problems and was more, a little bit tougher the second one wasn't as tough. And then we could kind of see how that played out in the family system. And then we just kind of opened up their communication between each other. And then before you know it, you just kind of step aside. In his case, could step aside. You know, we kind of made sure that what he was doing with me, 
uh, was replicated at school. We used the same kind of cues uh, around what he was learning. So his teacher knew, and then the parents did the same. And then the siblings, the parents kind of supported the siblings to kind of be treated the same. And then before you know it, it naturally, it started to be a, 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 a wheel that was kind of turning again. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's collapsing sometimes those silos that sometimes develops in families too. Mm-hmm. And, and this, is, this is one of the challenges of working with young people is that we even treat in silos. Right. So if a young person's facing anxiety, but also has some substance use, that may be two separate services that aren't communicating with one another. Mm-hmm. And so there's maybe some duplication of stuff, but there may be some contradiction potentially. And if that's not being addressed, that's probably very confusing for a young person. For young people listening, if they are having some struggles, right? And oftentimes people don't want to talk to people like you and I, right? They're like, oh, I don't want to talk about problems or I don't want to talk about those things called feelings. My son always says, oh my God, mom, are you going to make me talk about my feelings? I go, well, guess what? And he goes, great. Um, how? And, but obviously they're struggling, right? They have a lot of different pressures. They have peer pressure. They, you know, they have pressures to use substances. They have, you know, all to try things. And, but, they're, but they're struggling, but they're not sure how to feel better. What kind of things would you kind of start to suggest to them that they could maybe start trying or strategies that they could maybe um, start to think about to, to start feeling a little bit better? Um, obviously, it would depend on where, where the struggles are at. But I, I think that, you know, each person is an expert of themselves. They know who they truly are. And starting with, if you know you're not if something's taking away from who you truly are, what do you think the reason is? Do you find that your mood's low? Do you find that you worry a lot? Do you find that you feel um, very nervous or, you know, any number of those things? And looking at what sort of things help you feel better and the things that help you feel better, are they actually helpful to you? Mm -hmm. I might feel better not going to work, on a day that I'm feeling a bit bummed out. But if I repeat that, then I may not be able to earn the income I need to survive in my life. So there are things that sometimes feel better in the immediate, but not over long term is is helpful to me, such as Mm -hmm. things like substance use. Um, So we have to evaluate are the things that help us feel better if they're truly helpful on a bigger picture. But I would often just recommend to that young person, start with who do you feel comfortable talking to? If you don't feel comfortable going to a professional, who do you feel comfortable going to? And start there. And it can maybe that person join you to go to a professional if that's what's needed or check it out. I, I, I have young people laugh all the time because I sit down with them and I said, finding a therapist is like finding the perfect pair of jeans. You're not going <laughs> to put the first pair on and it always fits, right? So I think I, I like to give young people permission to understand that we're human beings and that we're not going to click with everybody. And this is mm-hmm. therapy and treatment is an environment where you need to feel safe and comfortable. So if for whatever reason, our personalities just don't gel, then maybe I'm not the right fit. Mm-hmm. And I can, and I'm, I'd rather you be honest with me about that so that you can find the right fit so you can get the treatment you need rather than try to spare my feelings. Because at the end of the day, what's important is that young person living the best life they can. And so they have to be able to feel connected to that source of help. And recognizing that help comes in many different forms. It doesn't always mean going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or even a therapist. Um, There's some really fantastic apps that might help a young person just develop 
more appropriate coping skills Mm -hmm. or be able to track their mood to get an idea of, you know what? Oh, I didn't even realize till I was paying more attention to it, just how low my mood was. But any number of things that they can reach out to, it's helpful to talk to friends, but understanding friends are not necessarily equipped to help on a certain level. So it's good to have your connections, but you know, at a certain point you need to evaluate, do I need to talk to a professional about this? And looking at where to start, do I start with my family doctor? Do I start with talking to somebody at my school? Um, If you're in post-secondary school, there's often wellness centers that are um, attached to the schools where they have people you can get connected to. And if they don't feel they're the right fit, they're going to let you know as well. Mm -hmm. But start by, by being open about it, talking to somebody, going where you feel safe, and take it step by step. It's not an easy process. I always, I, I'm so grateful. I've worked um, a crisis role in Emerge where people are usually coming in crisis. So they're open because they're in crisis. But I appreciate um, that it's not easy meeting a stranger and saying, hey, here's my stuff. Right. And that's, um, that there's a, a level of trust that goes into that and a level of vulnerability that I don't at all take for granted. Because I know if I had to share my story with somebody I'd want to feel that I've shared it in the right place and that I felt safe to do so. And so every time somebody does it with me, I, I, I'm usually telling them how thankful I am that they, they were able to do that because it's not an easy thing to do. Um, sometimes people find just by talking and saying things out loud, they start to feel a bit better. Having that acknowledgement, yet yes, that would be hard to deal with. That would be painful to experience because sometimes they feel they're completely alone in it. Right, for so sure. Some, Sometimes that's a good place to start and understand that, um, you know, no, I'm not the only one who's experienced this. And this may be a way to get connected to other people, whether through a group or just having that verified through that professional, whoever, that this is something that people experience and it doesn't make you abnormal and actually is part of your being a human being. But here's what we can do to try to help you so that you don't have to feel that bad if you're feeling bad. So just just taking a risk, um, thinking of who's supportive, and just reaching out, and then gauging that support as you reach out to see whether it's going to help you or not, and whether it's positive or not. For parents listening, right? And because we are seeing so much more, you know, issues, you see the, you know, kind of the mental health concerns with teens and suicides and, you know, you know, fentanyl and, you know, all those substances that people are using out there. I would say that a lot of parents are scared. Would you you agree with that? Absolutely. So if a parent's struggling with their teenagers, let's say they're dabbling uh, or they're kind of being a bit more reclusive, are there some things or things that you would suggest if you could speak to parents about some things that they could do? Um, First, I want to acknowledge that parents are in a particularly challenging position because seeing your young person may need help is like trying to get a child to eat their vegetables. <laughs> you know what the benefit is, but it doesn't mean you can always get them to do it. So parents are faced with recognizing something because they're, they're sitting from the outside. When you're inside of an experience, you may not always see it in the same way. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting from the outside and they're recognizing that there's an issue. And recognizing it doesn't mean that their child or their young person is going to agree that something needs to be done about it. If there is substance use, it may not be something that the young person feels needs to be addressed. They may feel that I'm totally okay. I don't have a, it's not at a level that anybody would call abuse or misuse. 
Um, and so I think parents are often caught between that knowledge that there's something that needs to be addressed and that ability to get it addressed. Um, on top of, you know, not always having access to information once the services start. But again, I would say for parents, have open dialogue with your young people. Um, you know, sometimes people are appalled at what a young person might feel comfortable telling their, their parents, thinking, well, you're, you're not parenting well, but I think it's beautiful when a young person can say, I'm doing something that my mom or dad might not agree with, but I know if I tell them that they're still gonna love me. I think that's an amazing thing to be able to share that and not fear so much um, chastisement from it that they're, they're just not telling them at all. Because when kids are not telling their parents what they're doing, sometimes they're at greater risk. Mm -hmm. So being able to say, mom, dad, you know what? Yeah, I did this and not be met with like an angry tone, but be saying, you know, thank you for telling me. And then being able to have a dialogue about is, is does something need to be done about this? Or going to your young person saying, I've seen a real shift in your mood. Like, I'm a little worried. Is this something, have you noticed it? Are you worried about it? Um, and then approaching those same channels. Like, do you start with a, a, pedi a pediatrician or a family doctor to see what might be available? Do you um, look up online what, what's available in your community um, to see what services might be available. I know that a lot of um, times I've worked in services where it's families talking to other families where they learn about some of the services because they, they as in discussion, they realize that young people have faced similar issues. And so they might learn about something that's available because another parent has had to utilize that service with their young person and, you know, approach their, their young person and say, you know, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? Um, and, and just start that dialogue. I think the hard part is when the parent wants it more than the young person, sometimes they're in a real tough mind because you cannot force certain things on somebody. Um, but, but I think through being able to have open dialogue, hopefully that they'll be able to be in a position where they can, have that dialogue and have the young person say, you know what, I'm not really feeling myself. You know, maybe we could check something out. But you start know, I, with that conversation. Right. And I think sometimes I think uh, parents need to have their support to get comfortable with what they're going to approach because potentially, let's say when you're a kid, you went to, you couldn't go to your parents because they would have freaked out. And you grow up kind of with that in you. And now you're like, oh my God, I think so-and-so is using drugs or whatever, or they're having sex or, and, and you're like, you know, escalated in yourself as the parent. <laughs> so I often say to parents, you have to say, okay, how am I feeling? Am I going to freak out? If I'm going to freak out, I got to figure out a, a different way to not freak out, mm -hmm. get my support before I have that conversation because all it takes is one, a couple of those conversations not going so well, and then your teen's going to go further away from you. Right, right. Which is tough, right? It is. If you know there's, they're doing stuff that's harmful, um, you, want, you want to make it better for them, and you can't make it better for them right. at this point, right? You're gently kind of going between the, the space where they're a child, where you could kind of direct them more so to mm -hmm. a, young, a, a tween. When tweens are taking you know, charge a little bit younger, I'm sure you're seeing that to, wow, I have to learn to let go, which is sometimes tough. I'm, I'm at that stage right now with my son and it's a tough thing. Of course, of course. No. It, you, you, you know, based on your own life experiences, you, you know, based on many things where things could lead. And it's very challenging to give them the space to take some of those risks mm -hmm. because you don't want to see them harmed. Right. Um, 
I, I think one of the things that, you know, parents often have to face is saying that you are aware of something is not saying you agree with something. And I think there's, mm-hmm. that's a, a divide that parents have to be able to say. So I knew what my parents weren't okay with. Um, and so if I chose to do it, I knew they were not okay. Mm-hmm. If I told them about it, my telling them never made them say, I think it's okay. They were still on board with, I don't agree with this. Mm-hmm. But if I could tell them and them not agree, it was better than me saying, well, if I don't tell them, they'll never know and that I can do what I please. And there'd be that disconnect in the communication. So I think um, even in that, like just like you talked about, um, thinking about how not to freak out if you're talking to your young person about something, mm-hmm understanding that you're having a dialogue where they tell you I'm doing this, say it's substance use. You're having that dialogue never means you're condoning it. If you don't condone it, it's okay to say, I don't agree with this, but you can also say, but I'm grateful you told me because I would rather know what you're doing than not know. You know where I stand, but I'd still rather know. And that's a really tough conversation to have. That's a tough skill, right? (laughs) Yes. You're because kinda... you just want to come down and say, absolutely not, right? Right, right, right. And it, but what it te- if, if we're so tough, it teaches our young people to either not share or to, to tell lies sometimes. Like I was laughing with my, my best friend of 30 years. Um, you know, my mom was adamant that I didn't go to nightclubs. She just had this thing at nightclub. But if I told her I was going to a party, she never fussed. So I just learned what language to use. I was like, mom, so-and-so and I are going to a party. And as long as I was with her and the word was party, she was okay. But if I said so-and-so and I were going to a nightclub, she just had this complete different picture in her head. So it taught me to change my language. It didn't change my behavior. Right. right. But I do remember having moments of going, I'm at a nightclub. If anything were to happen, like I remember thinking in the middle of dancing on a dance floor, <laughs> let nothing bad happen. Because if my parents get wind on the news that this thing happened at a nightclub, <laughs> then it's going to prove their point And they're going to be devastated that I went to a nightclub. So I remember having these moments of just let me have a good time and let everybody be safe so I can go home. And my parents don't have to be devastated. But eventually I was able to say, you know, I went to a party and it was at a nightclub. Well, you know how I feel about nightclubs. Yes, I know. But guess what? That's where the parties are at. And you know me well enough. And, you know, we got, I got to an age where my mom could say, I do. I trust you. I know who you are. I know who I raised you to be. And so I don't like that setting, but I trust you. And trust that you can make good choices. Right. Even though you're in an environment that maybe she's not, you know, loving up on right you kind of with time now i want to i want to pivot just to talk about something that i think a lot of people are afraid to talk about and that's suicide okay because i think it's very very important and in your world um i'm going to say that you're probably having that conversation a lot with uh, admissions so that's part of a weekly therapy session potentially have you had thoughts of suicide over the past right week? have you right. You know, have, has it, the thought occurred to you? Have you done anything to, to try anything? Because of the work that I do, it's a conversation that I have very regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is a myth that talking about it makes people think more about doing it. Right. right. Um, and provided the person's being honest with you, something can be done if you address it versus not addressing it and not know when they leave that room that that's a very real thought in their mind. 
And so par for parents listening, they're going to go, oh my goodness, we're talking about that word, right? And yeah. wh what, again, what, what words of wisdom would you give to a parent that potentially has the child talking like that? Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're worried because they're so down. What kind of things, again, could they do other than what you've already shared? Openness? Openness, but uh, you know what's a trick I've given many families? Because, again, I have worked from the crisis department in the emergency where parents are bringing their young people in who are facing those thoughts or even have done something to try it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you can't, after that experience, walk on eggshells. You feel like you're forever, oh my God, what am I going to do? And you want to, that's when you want to bubble wrap your child. And I get it. Um, but I, I've, what I've said to families is find a way to have that dialogue without having the dialogue very directly, mm -hmm. if necessary, but be able to check in because a parent's going to worry. And I, and I have to explain to a young person, I'm like, your parents are going to worry. Mm -hmm. If you were facing a medical issue, they're going to check if you're taking your medication. Mm -hmm. If you face thoughts or behaviors related to suicide, they're going to worry that that's going to come up again. And so I often encourage families to develop a code system to be able to check in. Whether they use numbers, colors, specific words, I always use the example of numbers to, um, to do it when you, you do it in a comp space when things are well, mm -hmm. but you develop your system. So if it's numbers, you know from your scale is one to 10, and one to two means I feel um, really bad. And this is when I might need to go to an emergency department. Three to four is this, five to six is this, seven to eight mm -hmm, is this, nine mm -hmm. to 10 is that. So that at any point you can just go, like if you see a shift in their mood, you can say what number. Yeah. yeah. And instead of saying, are you feeling suicidal right now? They've done a check-in about mood and kind of status without it being particularly intrusive because it's not always easy to talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I do appreciate one of the reasons sometimes it's easier to come to a stranger and talk to them about it in an emergency department or in a therapy session with somebody you might build rapport with there is you get to leave it there to some degree and go home and resume your normal life without feeling like it's hanging over your head. But mm -hmm. if you're having that dialogue with your parents, it kind of feels like it's in your face all the time, which is a challenge, right? I certainly know that growing up with a medical issue myself, I had arthritis as a child. I did not want my parents 24 seven to say, are you in pain? Were you, was your knee stiff today? I didn't want to hear about it all the time. Just let me be Natasha. Don't let me be Natasha with arthritis. Right. And right. so the young person doesn't want to be so-and-so who's had suicidal thoughts, who's suicidal mm -hmm. 24 seven. They just right. want to be them. Um, but if in a worried moment or just in an off moment, like maybe a parent can do that, do a quick check-in. And if you're at work and your young person's at home, you send a text message, what number, they give you a response, and you've already kind of determined what the intervention, if intervention is needed based on that. But finding ways to do check-ins um, that don't necessarily involve long, deep conversations might help normalize that hope environment where you right. can still take that opportunity to check but not have somebody feel like they're under the microscope all the time. Good. That's a, that's an amazing tip, Natasha. I can see that because the last thing they want to do is to get into the whole drama of what's, what, what happened before and yeah. be brought back to, because they're probably, they're wanting to probably leave that behind also. Yeah. You know, um, and like you said, even maybe change the language a bit, you know, says to them, yeah, I'm okay. I'm a little bit down, but I'm okay. Um, and so that the parents, and, and I would think that sometimes if that's happened with parents, they're going to worry all the time. Yeah. 
right? So of course, of course. You know. And what they're, what, you know, what somebody in the community's understanding of what we evaluate for suicide is different than what we in the hospital setting or somewhere might evaluate for suicide. It's scary to think your child is having the thought, but having the thought doesn't mean they have any desire to do it, any oh, intention right, to do it. Right. And so that becomes part of our evaluation. Um, and so sometimes I've had parents not understand, well, my, my child said this occurred to them. Why aren't they being hospitalized? If there's absolutely no intention, if the thought scared them, if there's no plan, we don't necessarily need to contain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've had a random thought when I've been in a store, oh, I should just put that in my pocket. And then I went, no, I don't steal. And I go about my business. <laughs> I would hate for the police to arrest me because I had a thought. Right. And so understanding there's a difference between a thought and an intention and a plan to do something is um, something that we often have to educate, you know, caregivers, family members, schools about, because that is part of what becomes part of the evaluation. Somebody experiencing depression and anxiety may have that passive thought enter their mind, but it doesn't actually mean that they intend to do something about it or have any real desire to do something about it. And get support, right? I would think. Yeah. If you're worried, you know, have that support system that you can go to that doesn't involve the child, that allows you to kind of keep your mental um, at a certain level state. So you're not mm -hmm. constantly going back to the child to kind of, you know, hash that out over and over again. Right. Well, Natasha, this has been very, um, very, very uh, insightful. And I'm thinking that people listening would, it probably would give them a lot of information about if they're struggling or even if they kind of think that, that their child or young adult is um, struggling. So tell people um, if what, what you do and where they can reach you if they're needing additional information and um, that you also speak on the issue um, around adolescent, child and adolescent mental health. Yeah, well, I think the speaking has come out of just the work that I've done. Um, I have a real passion for educating others on just understanding and maybe debunking some myths, but also helping know what are some of the steps that can be taken. And so that's kind of where um, the speaking has come from. I love to speak about just youth mental health in general, um, what resilience is, how to build that resilience to help support your young person, um, any number of those areas, um, how to, you know, navigate yourself through the mental health system. Um, so I can be reached probably best is by email, um, info at natashahalliday.com is my email address, and I can um, give that to Roxanne. Um, and just, uh, you know, this is, this is part of what it's taking me. I still work full time in a, in a clinic with young people, but I, um, I have done a few community workshops to educate parents about building resilience and just looking to do more of that stuff because I think that sometimes we operate in silos in the treatment sector where I might work with the young person, but if I'm not working with their family on any level, it, there's an imbalance because this young person's developing a skill that's not reinforced and may not be understood at home. And I don't, I don't want parents to feel that they don't have the capability of, of being of support to the young person. Um, so it's really important for me to look at how do we also help families get that information that they need as well. Um, so that's part of what I've kind of been shifting to do as well outside of just my regular kind of nine to five and just helping empower families to feel that they have the tools to support their young person in whatever they're facing. Um, so I, I'll provide you my contact info and please put it in the show notes and uh, I would look forward to hearing about any, even just questions about, you know, 
this is what what's presenting and I'm not sure what to do. I'm always happy to have those dialogues with people. Well, thank you so much for your time. And for everyone listening, uh, I think the, the main thing that I'm taking away today just in listening to Tasha is that kids are going to go through things and create the space so that they can come to you uh, in whatever, with whatever issue there is, small or big. And, you know, sometimes you have to contain that space within yourself to be able to listen to them. And like um, Natasha said, it doesn't mean you're complicit with what the behavior is, but you're creating that space to allow them to, to speak. And the more that you're able to do that, and even if you're thinking, wow, I'm freaking out right now, listen, try to support them, and then after that, you get your support because what you eventually want them to do is to be able to keep coming back um, and whatever skills they're needing, hopefully if they don't have them, you can help them with, with um, acquiring that skill. So um, again, you know, I'm Roxanne Durhage. I'm a mental health and wellness specialist. I'm a keynote speaker, trainer, and coach. So if you're needing any information on me, you can be, reach me at roxannedurhage.com. So again, Natasha, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks okay. for having me. Okay. Loved having you. Okay. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxannederhage.com slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.